Well, how's everybody doing? Well, I'm doing good. I don't know about you. So, <laughs> Oh, it's good to be a follower of Jesus, I'll tell you. It's good to belong to him. Well, I want to ask a little question. And, uh, I mean, you can pop up your hand if you want. But, um, so the last few weeks we've been looking at revival from the prophecy about John the Baptist, about preparing the way. And then there's been some messages on Sundays that's been relating to the subject of revival. Um, is revival becoming more part of your prayer life? Is it? Good. That's what part of this is all about. That's why this is a subject that we're pushing and teaching and preaching on because we want it to become more part of the focus of what we do, what we are, that we are really crying out for God to move. And I would rather live all the days of my life crying for revival, even if I never saw it again, than to just give up and become mediocre. I'd rather keep seeking after it, keep longing, keep desiring, because even in the pursuit of that, guess what? I'm gaining Him. Okay, I, I still win. I don't lose in the matter. And if, if our prayers are to persevere through and we see a move of God, whether big or large, whether small or large, uh, we win all the more then, don't we? But we are in the process then of seeking Him, desiring Him, and uh, so that's why we've been looking at this, why you've been striving to understand and why Pastor Jeff feels uh, so strongly about these meetings in, uh, at the end of August. It has nothing to do with me as an evangelist. It just has to do with the church uh, having a cry, having a hunger, a thirst after God, and not settling for status quo. If we are going to reach the lost at all, if it's going to be done, it must be done through the power of the Holy Ghost. And we must become people that are desperate for that because we realize our helplessness, our impotence to accomplish this by ourselves. So we must have this divine intervention to accomplish His work. Well, let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you now in the precious and wonderful name of Jesus. And as we look at your word this evening, give us understanding and give us grace to see how this applies to our life. Prepare our hearts, Lord, and help us to prepare our hearts for you, to prepare the way for you to come to us and for us to go to you. And so, Lord, we ask for the grace to apply these truths in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Well, the prophecy comes out of Isaiah 40. Okay, I'm not going to go through that again. The uh, fulfillment of it is spoken in uh, Luke chapter uh, 3, verse 4. says, As it is written... In the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be brought low, every crooked and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways shall be made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And so we've looked at the mountains, we've looked at the valleys, we looked in the very beginning of this about the idea of preparing the way of the Lord, that it is something that is our responsibility, that we are to be the ones that prepare the way. And I do believe that God is always the first cause. So he begins to stir the heart 
uh, and begins to move us that we might move in a particular direction. And uh, he'll not force us, not make us, but he is a, a powerful influencer. And so he is able to do that work and starting to move us in a particular direction that we might begin to prepare the way. Why would he move us in that direction? Because he wants us to prepare the way because he wants to come to us and he wants to make a smooth path so that we can go to him as well. This free access that goes both ways. Now, next uh, Wednesday, we will look at the, the, the end of this prophecy and the positive dimensions of why we do it. And of course, we've been looking for the last couple of weeks at the negative stuff. That guess what? We've got to deal with us. When you look at the call of God on Jeremiah... And one of the things that, that the Lord did when he called him, he gave him, if I remember correctly, four things to do that were negative and two things that were positive. So you were to tear down, destroy, dismantle, all this stuff, because that's the hard work. I mean, so ask somebody that is, uh, is remodeling a house, whether it's easier to remodel a house or build a new one. And they'll tell you all the time, if you have to do a major remodel, it's harder to do the remodeling. Because you've got to tear down everything before you can do anything constructive. And, you know, if you build a house, at least you have nothing and you're starting from, from, from nothing and building it up and it's all fresh. And so you have this hard process of tearing down all this stuff that's in us that we might be a people to prepare the way for him to come to us. So this week we're going to look at the last two points. I'm not going to take a, a, a week for each of them. I just want to combine them. And... Uh, it's going to be the crooked ways and the smooth ways. And uh, and let's begin with the crooked ways. And so, what is it? The crooked ways shall become straight. Well, I gave out uh, a bunch of books to anybody who wanted it. Of my The first book I wrote, Red in the Heavens. And... Uh, I know some of you have been reading it. I don't know how many of you have been reading it. I would venture to say this would be a very good time to read it. If you haven't picked it up, it'd be a good time to read it and begin to uh, understand what's going on and what the cry is for revival because that book, I'm not saying this for any proud for reason or anything else, but the book is a good practical book on what revival is, lays it out chapter by chapter, that you have a good understanding of what God wants to do and is filled with stories that are just to stir your heart of what God has done and what God has done in the past He wants to do again. But while I was reading it, and I have not read this book since I wrote it, okay? So this is the first time I've read it since I wrote it. Since I gave it to you, I figured it was good for me to read. And so, you know, it's been very interesting to read and, and uh, you know, even to look back and say, wow, I wrote that, I don't believe that, you know. But anyway, I did. So here's what Glenn Meldrum had to say from Ren the Heavens in chapter 11, uh, page 158, which is a chapter on spiritual warfare. At this very moment, a war is raging across the planet. Its battles are ferocious. Lives are lost. Prisoners are taken. Defections occur. Atrocities abound, and strategies are executed. The hostilities rage endlessly. It's a war to the bitter end. There is no demilitarized zone, and there can be no compromise. This is the most important conflict the world has ever known, a war over the souls of men, women, and children. Eternity hangs in the balance for billions of people. Satan has raised a coup d'etat against Almighty. The devil must be put down. It's a good statement, isn't it? That's what we're called to. This is what this is all about. 
And I believe the greatest way we can wage war is, is in revival. The most powerful form of evangelism the church has ever had, that the power of the Holy Spirit would be poured out through her to bring in masses of people in a short period of time. Of course, when you have that kind of influx of people, you have the very difficult time then of doing the next stage, which is discipleship. But that's a whole different issue. But that is what has to be done. And I could, I could take you to books and different things I've read on the aspect of revivals that had good discipleship. After the people were saved, you had a, a tremendous keeping rate. And those revivals that didn't have a, a good discipleship afterwards had a high backsliding rate. And so discipleship after that is very important because revival wasn't given to disciple. Revival is given to awaken the church and to save a perishing world. The church then has a responsibility to disciple, but we have to prepare the way for this to begin. And so the crooked ways, you know, what are the crooked ways? They are expressions I would put with an overarching statement of selfishness. Now, Charles Finney in his book on theology, he brought an overarching thing that I believe to be very true, where he said all sin is selfish. And so take time to even think of that. Think it, name the sin. Name what is pride, lust, greed. Every single sin is selfish. Every single sin. So when we get to the big mountains, guess what? We're tearing down these huge expressions of selfishness in our life. When we begin to fill in the valleys, we're dealing with these deep things within us that have a control over our life, but they're all expressions of selfishness. Now we're getting to the crooked way. So you have this, this crooked road that's going through, and yes, you've torn down the mountains, you've filled in the valleys, but the road is still crooked. Well, I had this uh, man and woman get saved in my church in Detroit when I pastored there, and uh, they eventually got married. I performed the wedding for them, and, and uh, then after I resigned the church in Detroit and went to grad school, they ended up eventually moving down to Alabama. They're still walking with God, still have a, a good marriage, a healthy marriage, and... and uh, I am so sorry. I went in that little rabbit trail to bring something out, and I forgot why I brought them out. You know, I, I don't know if I said this before, but I used to do that so much when I was a young pastor because, you know, I'd just come out of the drug culture, fried my brain cells, you know. And God's done a lot of healing in my brain cells. But once in a while, I mean, they kind of short circuit or whatever. I don't know. But it's not an age thing. It's a Glenn thing, you know. It's a, it's a me thing. And, you know, so uh, anyway... Um, oh, I remember what it was. He came up here, um, and this would be a, a few months ago. So he's in, in, in the, the foothills in northern Alabama, the foothills coming out of Tennessee. You know, and it's little mountainous, not big mountains or anything else. But when he comes up here and he's driving back to our place, he comes and says, man, is this some wiggly roads. You know, so it's a lot wigglier than what his is. Well, because ours are all following ridges through everything, you know. So it's all over the place. And, you know, it's like you can tear down the mountains, you can fill in the valleys, but the road's still all crooked. you got to straighten the road out. you got to straighten it out and, and make it easy to travel. Well, that was one of the things with, uh, with, that made the expansion of the church uh, so important in the early days when it began, that early church era, it was the Pax Roma, they called it, and that was the peace of Rome. 
then because Rome had virtual peace all around, what the armies did, the armies built roads. And when they built roads, they made these safe roads that made commerce really easy for that day among the nations, which allowed the gospel to spread with tremendous speed because they had the ease of these great roads that the Romans had built. And so these straight roads, these roads to get to God very quickly is very good for us rather than having all the baggage of sin and the crooked ways in our life that keep us from him that we start making the road straight. And so these crooked ways are the sins of the individual that become the sins of a family and can then even become the sins of the church. Because there's no such thing as private sin. And I brought that out in one of the first uh, times we spoke. No such thing as private sin because whatever we are affects everybody in our life. Just like there's no such thing as private righteousness. Because if you walk righteous before God, you'll affect everybody in your life with that righteousness. You see, what we are is the only thing that we can give, and that's what we will give to others, good or bad. And so we should really make sure that what we're giving is good because God has done that deep work in our lives. We're allowing that, that good work to be manifested to us through family and friends in the church. One author said, your love of self is causing the struggle you are having with the will of God. God won't feed the gratification of selfish pride, for selfishness is serving ourselves at the expense of others. That's really a, a, a disturbing statement, because what is it? Selfishness is serving me at the expense of others. So whatever expression of sin there is, that if all sin is selfishness, if the little sins are selfish as well as the big sins, okay, we've been trying to tear down the big obvious sins, and we're trying to fill in those, those deep areas in our lives, so now we've got these crooked ways. What those crooked ways are still a separation and expressions of selfishness to God and to each other. So the crooked, well, what's crooked? It's that which is bent, that which is illegal or even criminal. Well, I think the big criminal things are the mountains, okay? So let's say we dealt with some of the big criminal things in our life. Now, I'm not saying criminal necessarily criminal against the, the, the federal government or the state or local government, but criminal against God's government. So we've tore down a lot of those things. We've filled in some of the criminal things that are deeply rooted in our life, but now we're starting to get a little bit nearer, a little closer to these things that, that maybe we've kind of brushed off and haven't looked at before, didn't really want to deal with because they didn't, we didn't think that they were that big. Now, legalism is always about trying to be right with God through our own moral goodness. Holiness always gets deeper and deeper in the pursuit of doing right because we want to be pleasing to God. Whole different motive, completely different motive. And it's not legalistic to say, I want to get the questionable things out of my life. That's not legalism. That's about loving Jesus, saying, I don't want these selfish things, these selfish expressions in my life. God, help me to deal with them. So, okay, God, I got the big things out, but man, I got a lot of crooked ways in my life, and I need to deal with these. And so, you know, I'm just going to run through a few of these, but, you know, they, these are just things that I'm looking at. And they may have been a mountain in your life or a valley, or maybe they're this little thing that's there, this little crooked way in your life that God is starting to put his finger on and says, child, you need to deal with this. You've tolerated it for a long time. You didn't think it was a big deal because you made it a small little crooked way in your life rather than one of the big mountains that was a problem. So this could be areas of compromise. And I'll tell you, this can touch so many, so many ways. I mean, it can touch it from media to, you know, to, to social media to, 
what we listen to. I mean, I can't tell you the times I've, I've gotten in a car with a pastor. You know, he has me out to preach meetings, to try and stir the church, and there he has secular music on, and he's in a panic trying to shut it off. You know, I'm going, you know, why? you got a crooked way there. You know, what? I can't say anything to him. He knows that something's wrong, whether it's a pastor or somebody else. They know that, that something's not right. There's this crooked way. Well, why are they convicted? Because they know that what they're listening to has all kinds of corruption in it. All kinds of, of you know, secular music is filled with, with sexual induendos and, you know, sometimes not induendos. I mean, it's like a filled with all kinds of filth and garbage. And, you know, then people try to say, well, country music, that's, that's God's kind of music. Well, I can't stand country music, so not my kind of music. But I'll tell you what, you go into some place that is country music playing, the sickness, man, it's, it's, it is worse than, than acid rock or hard rock. Because at least, you know, with those, some genres of music, you can't tell what they're saying. But with country, you can. It's vile. I mean, it is vile. So we have these crooked ways, these compromises we let into our life that we think, well, it's not that big a deal. It's not affecting me. It is affecting you. You can't have a crooked way in your life and not have it affect you. I've been giving accounts from the 1904 Welch Revival. And the reason why I've been doing that is because it's a, a new enough revival. It's still a long time ago, right? You know, 120 years almost. Um, but it was new enough that there is all kinds of reporting that was on it. All kinds of, of newspaper articles. and I mean, the, the, the reporting on it was tremendous. So we have evidence of it that we might not have quite as much with some of the older revivals. So we have some credible accounts. Well, here, this was in the South Wales Daily News. Infidels were converted, drunkards, thieves, and gamblers saved. Many thousands reclaimed to respectability and honored citizenship. Confessions of awful sins were heard on every side and everywhere. Old debts were remembered and paid. Theaters and public houses in, are in distress for lack of patronage. Several police courts had clean sheets and were idle. In five weeks, 20,000 conversions were recorded. This is a secular newspaper. Something so extraordinary that they could not deny it. There was another account, I didn't, I didn't include it, but it's of this, this newspaper reporter that was sent from London to go and to report on the, the revival and to come back with a negative report he goes to the revival. He couldn't, the place, the, the church he was in was absolutely packed. He ends up having to go into an upper balcony to a, a, one of the lone seats that was left. He sits there, and as the, the prayer and the worship and everything's going on, all of a sudden this loud cry comes out and says, Oh, God, forgive me. I'm such a wicked sinner. There was a reporter. He wrote on the revival a very positive thing. They published it and fired him. I mean, you understand that, that this is what the move of God does. It affects people. It changes people. And it becomes so evident that it can't be denied. Now, people may speak bad of it and write against it and, and attack it, but yet they can't deny it. And we're in a place today in the American church that they can ignore us. And that should be breaking our hearts, that they can ignore us and not even know that we exist because we no longer disturb them. Another crooked way can be the unforgiveness and bitterness, which that can also be a mountain. So many times people have these humongous 
mountains of bitterness. Sometimes there are these little things that they let get in. But one way or the other, bitterness is a corrupting of the heart, a corrupting of the soul, and something that separates us. And Jesus had some serious things to say about it. Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your Father, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now, if I understand this correctly, to not be forgiven of sin means that we are left in our sin, means we must deal with our sin ourselves. And when we stand before God, we must give an account of our sin ourselves. And that is never a good thing. I believe that puts us outside of salvation. And that's a very dangerous place to allow bitterness. Now, is bitterness a terrible thing to deal with? Man, it is. When, if you let it get a hold of your heart, it is going to cause you nightmares. It's going to cause you nightmares because, I mean, it can be hard. The, the thoughts can go run through your head and be this, this just repeating thing. And if you don't fight that, it's going to get a hold of your heart and corrupt your heart and make it easier than for you to be bitter at the next person and easier at the next and easier at the next until you become so filled with so much bitterness. It needs to be dealt with. And Jesus told us to deal with it because he forgave us. He paid the price for us to be forgiven. And so he expects of us, demands of us, to take that forgiveness and give it freely to others. Anger. Anger can be a crooked, a crooked place. Some people, it's a mountain. Some people, it's a mountain. And you know, in our culture, that is getting further and further and further away from God, people are becoming more and more angry, and they don't even know why. Have you ever seen the news stories? And it's just insane. Where you see people, they're ordering a, a sandwich at, at some you know, burger joint, and, uh, you know, they don't get what they want and they begin to destroy the, the, uh, the, the restaurant and climb over the, the counter and begin to attack the people. And I'm going, hey, because you didn't get ketchup on your hamburger, you know? I mean, but there's something deep-rooted in that, an anger that is just seething in them. And all it takes is this one little thing and they explode and they don't even know why they're so angry. Well, of course, not being Christians, they don't have a remedy to it. As being Christians, we do have a remedy to it. There's a way to overcome anger. But I'll tell you what, I don't know if I have ever in my life had truly pure, righteous anger. I would rather say, God, help me get all anger out of my life because I don't even know how to have righteous anger because my character is too corrupt. And so I want to deal with it. And guess what? It can get in there. It can get in there when you're frustrated, when life is getting busy, when life is getting hard, when you start having some hurts or struggles or people do hurt you. And so we have to deal with that because Jesus went and said in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, if you have bitterness against somebody, if you have anger at them, it says if you've murdered them. That's a serious accusation. That's a serious uh, thing that Jesus is saying. You know, it's... I don't know what the statistics are, but I know incorporated into everything we buy from Walmart is a certain amount of money there to pay... For for all the shoplifting that goes on. And the shoplifting is insane. I mean, it's insane. I mean, so you, you, the stories I hear, when I do hear stories, it just, I just shake my head. That's crazy. You know, people go into grocery stores with these, you know, coats or dresses and they have all these pockets in, and they go up to the meat market and they start putting all the meat and all their stuff, walking out with, you know, a hundred, couple hundred dollars more full of meat or whatever they want. You know, it's just no conscious pushing a, a cart with their children in it, you know, doing it before their children. I mean, walking out with TVs and, and that. There was a pastor 
There was a pastor in Wisconsin. He was a pastor of the large church. He was going into the Walmarts and was caught changing price tags, putting cheaper price tags on what he was buying. He didn't want to fully shoplift, but he was stealing nonetheless. Lost his job, everything. A big scandal in the whole community. Crooked ways that we let into our life. Cheating, stealing, lying. Do you know what? People think nothing anymore of lying. Nothing anymore of lying. It's crazy, you know, but how much of that is in the church? How much of that has become part of the church culture? Because that's what we came out of, so it's just, we don't think about it. But you got those little lines, you got the, the little stealings, you know. You, the, the, the cashier gives you $5 too much, and you walk out and you say, thank you, Jesus. No, no, thank you, Jesus. You go back and give it back. Otherwise, you're stealing. But we don't think it. Small little thing, it's just a little crooked way. Well, I needed the five bucks, I guess. God understood it. So he's called God the one that's... We make him guilty for our theft. I'm just saying that because we can, as Christians, have all these little crooked ways in our life. And getting the crooked ways out of our life have nothing to do with legalism. It has to do with wanting to be right with Jesus, walk in right fellowship. Have nothing in before him that grieves his heart. And so you go back with the $5 in your hand and you say, oh, you gave me $5 too much. And the cashier will think you're nuts because nobody does that. And so you just give a little testimony. Oh, well, I can't take that because, you know, I'm a follower of Jesus. That would be stealing. You know, I mean, it's like, how important is our testimony to us? Here's an interesting one. It's a a crooked way that's in some people. I'd say not in most here at least. I might say almost all. But it's laziness. I mean, you want to look at laziness, go to the book of Proverbs, man. It has a lot to say on the lazy person. Laziness. But there's two expressions of laziness. You have the lazy person that is just plain lazy and today would live their life gaming. That's all it is. They live for games and they won't even work a job because, you know, they just live to play play video games. And, uh, you know, so they're just lazy. And they they are a leech then. They're a leech. They're leeching off a of family and, and so on. That's why you have kids that can be in their 30s still living at home because, you know, they, they can't hold a job down because they're so addicted to gaming. They're lazy. But you have another kind of laziness. And that is for the industrious individual. The individual that, that is very busy. I mean, is, he's on, on time for work every single day. He works hard. He doesn't rob from the company by taking, you know, breaks longer than what he should or anything else. I mean, he's a good, diligent worker, but he's lazy spiritually. Doesn't have a prayer life. Doesn't go and pursue Christ. He just he just does basically what is necessary to get by. He is spiritually lazy, and that can be a crooked way because we don't realize that the spiritual laziness. I just don't have the desire to press in to do what is necessary to get up earlier or to say it maybe a little later to be with Jesus because I just haven't made him a big enough priority. Another author on. The Welch Revival said a young woman listened intently as Evan Roberts, who was the primary uh, evangelist of that revival, described some of the mysteries of God. She finally exclaimed, Mr. Roberts, how fortunate you are to know all these things. I wish I knew them also. Then Mr. Roberts turned to her and solemnly said, Are you willing to pay the price? The young lady hung her head, did not answer. And never came back. Are you willing? 
We can say how much we want to know Jesus, but how much do we? How much do we? How much are we letting the little things, these little crooked ways in our life, whatever they may be, and you have names for your own, whatever it might be, but that are keeping you from that place of nearness with Jesus. What about rough places? Removing the rough places. I mean, I... You could go and say, well, God, aren't you getting a little picky here? All right, I took down the mountains. I filled in the valleys. The road that was crooked, I went through all the necessary labor to tear up the old road and make a new road, okay? It's a straight road. It's going right from my house right to your throne room. Okay, I made everything right. Isn't that good enough? But if he is who he says he is, if this is Almighty God wanting to come to us, then he has every right to be able to say, I will come to you when the road is smooth. Now, as if you go across the country on Highway 10, there are some points of it that it's like old highway that was all just poured cement. And, you know, I can just say this because I've driven across Highway 10 so many times as an evangelist, back and forth. And, you know, but it's not just Highway 10. There's some other roads out there that are like that. But these old cement roads, what happens is from 80,000-pound trucks going along, there starts to be this, this up-and-down thing. So you're driving along in the motorhome. Over each of those bumps, you go like this. And by the end of the day, you are literally seasick. I'm not kidding. Your stomach is all sick. And, you know, it's just this whole thing. Well, you know, imagine if you go back 100 years and you have, you know, a horse and buggy. You know what they would think? Man, they would think that was an absolutely awesome road. Right? I mean, look at this four-lane highway. You know, look at how many buggies we can get going down here. Nice and smooth. Get that buggy going 70 miles an hour, and that guy's going to think very different. You see, if we're not going very fast, the road does not seem rough. If you're just crawling along and, you know, stopping along the way every couple feet, the road that you're on may not seem rough at all. You may not notice the potholes. So go up into Michigan, okay? I'm from Michigan originally, the Detroit area. That part of Michigan has freeze-thaw, freeze-thaw, freeze-thaw through the winter. You know what that does to roads? It breaks them up. I mean, they have potholes that are just absolutely humongous. So you're going along 70 miles an hour and you hit a pothole. And if it doesn't blow your tire, it bends your wheel. So that now you've got to get another wheel because the potholes are so bad. But you're going five miles an hour and it's not that big a deal. You just walk around it. Ride your bicycle around the hall. Not a big thing. You understand this whole thing about, about smooth paces is really affected the faster we start going. The faster we want to go, the more that we really want to do with Christ, the more we're going to begin to see those rough ways in our life, the rough areas in our character. Think about that. What are the rough areas in your character? Now, you know where it comes out? Okay, husbands, towards your wife. Okay, wifeys, comes out towards your husband, okay? Right, isn't that, doesn't that, the rough areas... Doesn't it just come out, the little irritableness, the things that can be inside of us, the grumpiness, the, you know, all these attitudes that can be there? You know, I mean, something goes on that's not, that you're not happy with and you give your spouse a silent treatment? The rough areas that we have not dealt with, that we've not really looked at because, well, we, you know, we don't think it's that big a deal or whatever. But there's still corruptions in our character. And what is the root of it? Well, selfishness. It really is. 
Do you know what makes absolutely beautiful marriages? A Christ-like character. The more like Jesus we are, the better we make our marriages. Because more and more we get the corruption, the rough places out of our character, and it starts becoming sweeter and sweeter as we have this smooth road. I wish I could say that I am never bothered by anything. (laughs) It's just not true. But I want to get there. You understand? I want to get there. I cry out to God all the time to get there more and more. And when those crooked ways and when those rough things in my life come out, I want to see them. You understand? I want to see them. I want God to help me see them. I want to take the path of repentance because I want to deal with them. I don't want to ignore them and pretend that they aren't there. I want to really deal with it. And so God wants us to deal with it. Not because he's mean and trying to whack us over the head, but because he's trying to transform us so that we become more and more like him, that our life becomes truly better because of him, and we become a better blessing to other people, and ultimately then a testimony to a dying world, that they can see the reality of Christianity in our life, that it becomes evident in the characters that we have. And so, what are some of the rough places? They can be our traditions. You know, you can have traditions that are just you know, get in the way of the reality of, of our faith. There again, you have compromise. Let me deal with a big one in the American culture, and it's huge in the, in, in the rural area. Sports. Right? I mean, you can have people that will be faithful to their children being at sports and would rather have them at sports than at church. And you know what they've just done by making the priority of sports over church? That sports is more important than Jesus. They have went and cowered to the culture and says, this is what the culture does, and if my kids don't go, they're not going to play. And you said it's more important for them to play than to be in church and learn about Jesus and what it is to walk with God. Terrible. I mean, it's a corruption in the church that is horrendous and has swept through the church, swept through it. I mean, it's overtaken the mass portion of the church where people do that all the time. You have the pursuit of pleasure. You have the social media, entertainment. I mean, whatever the rough places may be in your life. But I would go back to what the 1904 Welsh Revival said. One of the things of the four points that they said that they dealt with in the, in the revival was get the questionable things out of your life. I think the questionable things are the rough places, the rough things. Well, some of it you may not be able to say, that exactly is sin, but it's feeding my flesh. Or it's not letting me be more like Jesus, so I need to deal with it. And so what are the rough places in your life? They have a saying with the 1904 Welsh Revival, and I would say this is true for every single revival. A very disturbing statement. God began to work. Then the devil began to work in opposition. Then God worked all the harder. Then man began to work. And the revival ended. You see, man is the one that gets in the way. There are times where I think revival can come to a place where it is effectively saved all the people that will be saved in an area. And I'm not saying that more can't be, but you know, God has brought in a mass of people and the others have hardened themselves against the move of God. But the majority of time, revival stops because man gets in the way. Charles Finney went and warned people of becoming comfortable with the Holy Spirit, becoming used to the move of God. 
So they've seen so many extraordinary things. They've seen so many people, you know, just radically being delivered from sin and, and coming to salvation. They've seen all these tremendous things and they grow used to it. They lose the awe of God in the midst of what's going on. And I'm telling you this as a reality. I was saved as a young man in a revival that swept through the Detroit, Michigan area. I was not saved at a church. The power of God hit me in a park where I partied. Okay, all by myself on a Saturday around noon. The next night I hitchhiked out to this Jesus Freak church, and that's when I was baptized in the Holy Ghost. And that became my home church until I eventually went out and pioneered a work in inner city Detroit. After being in the church for nine months, the pastor asked me to move into the living ministry, as we called it. And basically what it was, it was a loose kind of discipleship ministry. So I lived with 26 other guys in a very radical environment with all kinds of evangelism and ministry work. And you're learning how to, how to preach and teach and, and all this. And you live in the environment. I mean, we live there at the church. And you got used to the presence of God. And I was one of the ushers. So I had hair down the middle of my back. Okay? Holy blue jeans, big Thompson chain reference in my hand. And I'd be the greeter. And there were so many people coming to church. There was not an open seat anywhere. They went down the center aisle. And they put they would put folding chairs on both sides of the center aisle. That you'd only have something like this much room to travel. And then on each side of the, of the side aisles. Then all the way in the front where the front row would then be. Their knees would be up against the platform. And then in the back another row. Anywhere there could be any seat. It had to be the responsibility of the ushers to take them and sit one here, sit one there, whatever empty seats there were, and it was packed and people were still standing in, in, in the vestibule. I remember, I can't tell you how many times this happened to me. People would walk in, and they would walk in and they say, This feels so good. They'd be walking in the presence of God. And because I lived in it, I got used to it. That's what can happen. James Stewart said on the 1904 World Revival, he said, His presence was felt in homes, on the streets, in the mines, factories, and schools. So great was his presence felt that even the places of amusement and carousal became places of holy awe. Men entered taverns, ordered drinks, and then turned on their heels and left them untouched. Wales up to that time was in the grip of football fever, soccer we call it, where working men talked of one thing only and gambled on the results. Now famous football players were converted and joined the open-air meetings. Many of the teams disbanded after the players were converted and the stadiums were empty. Beneath the ground, miners gathered for worship and prayer and Bible study before they dispersed into the various sections of the mine. You understand, revival came and it affected everything. It changed everything. The presence of God was so real, so tangible. One man and his daughter go to get on a train from London, from England, to go to the revival. And they go to the train conductor and say, where do we get off? And he says... You will feel it. You'll know when to get off. And then, what do I do then? He says, follow that feeling, and it'll take you right to where God is. 
We don't understand the reality of the tangible friends of God and what God can do. But yet this is the reality and history of what God has done and what God wants to do again. And so he calls us, he compels us, he demands of us to prepare the way for him. Get the mountains out of your life, get them out. Get the valleys filled, fill in those valleys. Get the crooked way straight. Now get the rough way smooth. Why? So that he can come to us.